This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, independent news commentary with a California perspective featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 14, Episode 14, Ambitious Like a Mother, Why Prioritizing Your Career is Good for Your Kids, Talking with Lara Bazelon. With us today is Lara Bazelon, professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, where she holds the Barnett Chair in Trial Advocacy. She is also a frequent op-ed contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic, an author, and of course, the mother of two children. In her latest book, Ambitious Like a Mother, she takes on some popular myths about working mothers. The work-life balance, the selfless mother, and female ambition is not toxic. In fact, it's quite healthy. In addition, she advises women to accept the imbalances of working and raising kids to demand flexibility in the workplace and in the home, especially post-pandemic. And finally, your kids are going to be all right. Hi, Lara, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Lara, you're a tenured professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law with special interest in juvenile and racial justice. Tell us about your work. What we do at the University of San Francisco School of Law in the criminal and racial justice clinics is essentially run a pro bono law firm. So we represent actual clients free of charge, which is subsidized by the law school. And we can be pretty selective in the cases that we take. So we represent people who, for example, have been wrongfully convicted. And we're doing that right now, actually, in Indiana. And we've done it before in Louisiana. So Mm -hmm. we, we branch out. We also have a unique partnership right now with the district attorney's office, where we do some wrongful conviction work with them and some resentencing work. And then in the other clinic, they focus primarily on representing people who are charged with misdemeanors in in state court. So we kind of run the gamut in terms of the services that we provide. And it's really an opportunity for the students to learn how to be lawyers because they're the ones who are taking laboring or, but they are overseen and supervised very closely by myself and my quite amazing staff. Well, Laura, how did you come up with the idea for the book? I came up with the idea for the book a little bit accidentally. I think I kind of stepped into it because I was really sick and tired of hearing about the work-life balance and the question, how do you do it all? Because the truth is that it's really an imbalance and often quite messy. So in 2019, I wrote this op-ed that was published in the New York Times. I didn't pick the headline, they did. And the headline was, I picked my job over my kids. And it went viral. I ended up on Good Morning America and the Tamron Hall show and it launched this big conversation about women and work and ambition and children. Uh And so I was thinking about it and I realized after all of this outpouring on both sides of the question that there was a lot more to be said. And that's when I got the idea to build it out into a book by interviewing women who were ambitious and also had children and then just kind of looking at the research and what that said about women like that. Well, Laura, let's launch into the book, but first, Tell us about your $5 million bet, which is at the very beginning of your book. I call the climb to tenure 
a $5 million bet because if you were able to get tenure in academia and particularly in law school, what that means is that you make a reasonable living and also you have job security, which means that unless you do something truly catastrophic, you can stay in that role until you're ready to retire. And so when I did the math and added up what that would look like over a period of say 10 or 15 years, I came up with that amount and I thought, okay, if I invest in this and it's not clear that it will pay off, I could fail, I could fall off the ladder or it could not work out. But if I, if I try really hard, then this is the payoff. The payoff is that I get to do what I want in my job with complete freedom and also that I have financial security in a long-term way. So that's why I called it in my head, the $5 million bet. And in addition to which the tenure track, of course, gives you the opportunity to write the op-eds, to author books, and most importantly, gives you the the stability and the financial security of being able to raise two children. That's exactly right. And I think built into the $5 million bet was this idea that it was going to take a lot of time away from my kids in the years leading towards tenure. But then once I had tenure, I was going to have much more power to arrange my own schedule. And that was going to allow me to pick and choose when I worked. And I thought that would definitely be to my kids' benefit. So that was part of part of the bet that I was making. And that has, in fact, proved to be the case. And you're absolutely right. Just in terms of the freedom to express my opinion, <laughs> I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> and it can be scary to to go out in the public world with them. People are very judgmental and employers can also be judgmental, which is something that they're allowed to do by and large. But when you have tenure, you cannot be fired or sidelined because of your views. And so that was something about tenure that was always very, very attractive to me because I thought it was very important that I have the ability to speak my mind. So at the outset, as you were beginning to write this book, you had a career plan, you had a path, you had a track, and you are you're now on that track and you're able to achieve these other goals in addition to the in addition to the goal of your your passion about advocacy for juvenile justice for racial justice that's first and foremost your career and of course teaching also first and foremost your career but then the the other aspects writing op-eds writing books you're do i say you've got it all I definitely, I feel like a wildly messy and imperfect person. And when I look in the mirror, I do not see a woman who quote unquote has it all. I do, however, feel exceptionally happy and fulfilled. And my getting my position at the University of San Francisco School of Law was 100% a turning point in my life in terms of my confidence, my economic stability, my sense of purpose. It really has been just game changing for me. But I did want to say this to folks who are listening I don't want to make it sound like I followed this linear track. Actually, my career moved in zigs and zags, and there were some years where I was really floundering. I had left a position that I had that was not a tenure track position Mm -hmm. at another law school because I just couldn't do the commute anymore. My body was sort of breaking down from the stress of that and my, my marriage falling apart. And so there were some lean years where I really didn't know what was coming next, and I wasn't sure that it was going to work out at all, and I was dealing with a lot of psychological and economic insecurity. And I think that that's part of the journey for a lot of working mothers. So I Mm want to just name that and normalize it. But it seems as though you were able to put that behind you. Now you are on track. 
I think what really helped was that it's funny. The first book I wrote was about wrongful convictions and, and restorative justice, which is the, the idea of bringing people together who've been divided along opposite sides, finding areas of commonality. In this case, people who were the victims of crime and then the people who were wrongfully incarcerated for committing those crimes. And in doing the research about restorative justice, I was really able to apply some of those principles to my own life and found that to be very healing because I was thinking to myself, these are people who have been raped or had family members murdered and then the system has lied to them and told them that the guilty person was caught and even sometimes they testified believing that they were doing the right thing only to find out that this extra horrible miscarriage had occurred where the wrong person had been had been incarcerated and thinking about all of the things that they were able to do to psychologically get to the point to meet and engage with each other it seems like my own troubles were pretty small by comparison and i just thought if if they can use restorative justice surely i can apply it to my own life. And so I've really tried to do that, mm -hmm. not perfectly, but in a somewhat intentional way. And it helped me stop thinking about myself as the victim of my circumstances and being angry and bitter at other people and acknowledging my own responsibility and also trying to build resilience. So I credit that research and the writing with really helping me through that period, getting me somewhat on the more secure footing than I'm on today. Well, let's talk about the book. And the book, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's in part a memoir. And in part, it's also a, a study where you do all these interviews with so many women from around the country in many different fields, academia, business, banking, service industry, all different age groups and racial profiles. Tell us about the book and both the memoir part and the, the research part. Anyone who writes will tell you that writing is very hard, and it is, and this book was no exception. The research was incredibly fun and at times joyful and interesting because I got to spend time with these incredible women, mm -hmm. and it was so fun. And because of the pandemic, we were all trapped at home. I was able to do a lot of this on Zoom, and having those human connections at this time of isolation and lockdown made it even more meaningful. But I just became huge fans of these moms. I think of them as my moms, even though obviously they're not. And the other part that was really interesting, the memoir part was that I got to interview my mom. And I think everybody probably thinks they know everything there is to know about their parents. But <laughs> right. in my case, it really was not true. And there were all these kind of hidden surprises about my mom's life. And so learning about that was really interesting. And I just came to realizations about my parents and my family and my own life choices that I don't think I would have come to if I hadn't really drilled down and asked my mom in particular some pretty intense questions. And of course, she was game to participate, which made it possible, really. Your mother is a obviously a, a huge influence in your life, but also an, another very fascinating subject because her own father died when she was three years old. She was raised by her mother. She went on to medical school when that was a rarity for women to do that. She met your father. Bo both of them were quite young and started their family young. But it sounded as though she really, she balanced beautifully her profession as a doctor and at the same time, raising four girls and and being married to an attorney, she seemed to be a great role model for you in terms of covering all those bases. My mom is a fantastic role model. She's also a really daunting role model, and she's a very unusual person. And I say that because I don't think very many people 
could skip two grades, graduate first in their class in medical school when women weren't even going, mm -hmm. get married very young, have four children, have a husband with an incredibly demanding career who was not remotely interested in doing anything on the domestic front, manage all of that and have their own career and and have a very, very happy, successful marriage. My parents uh -huh. are deeply in love. And in the end, I really was not able to achieve all the things that my mom did. And I, I think part of me always felt kind of bad about it because because her life did seem she just seemed to have kind of pulled off the impossible. And it was interesting because I learned a couple things when I was interviewing her. I mean, she felt a lot when we were little that people were, were judging her, particularly her own mother and her mother-in-law for, for working. And also that she was, she told me that she was pretty lonely. She didn't have time to have any friends right. very much or, or do anything, have any downtime. And that really coincided with my memory of her, that she was always busy. She was always in motion. And I think that that was difficult for her. And the other thing I didn't realize was that she had really arranged her career to some degree around my dad and around us and had made a lot of, I don't want to say sacrifices because she doesn't see it that way, but I do. And so what I also realized was that I was just sort of unwilling as my own person to do the kinds of, I don't know, backflips almost that mm -hmm. my mom did. And that was an interesting realization for me. We're just different people. And oddly, I think in a lot of ways, at least temperamentally, I'm a lot more like my dad. Well, it's interesting in your book, um, in your book, you refer to your mom. The only times she was away from the family overnight was when she went to the hospital to have another child or when she traveled to do her medical boards to Houston. And I can't recall the other location, but, but that was amazing growing up that she was away for perhaps only for a handful of nights. And then to, that they were to give birth and to do her medical boards. It's really incredible. And the other thing I realized when I was writing this is my dad was away a lot. My dad was a very ambitious, hardworking lawyer. He worked at a big law firm. He wanted to become partner and he did pretty quickly. But to do that, he took on this case that was in Florida. And what that meant was that for eight years, once a week, every month, he would leave. Mm. I'm sorry, one week out of every month, he would leave. So for eight years, there was a week every single month where he wasn't there. He would go to Florida and take these depositions. And my mom was home alone with three and then four kids. And I remember being really angry with my dad for leaving us and he would call and I would hang up on him. He likes to remind <laughs> me that I would force him to call back three or four times. But the truth is I didn't end up holding that against my dad and I didn't feel neglected by my dad. And if anything, I appreciated the time I had with my dad more and tended to take my mother more for granted. And when I was deciding whether or not I was going to travel for work myself, it never even occurred to me to compare myself to my dad, but in the end, he and I made strikingly similar choices. I'm very unlike my mom in that for years, I traveled all the time for work more even than, than my dad did and when my kids were young. I would have to say, first of all, the book is a, is a beautiful homage to your mother in particular and the, the choices that she made, the juggling that she made, that she did. So it's a, it's a great homage by a daughter to her mother and also with a, a great respect to dad because you ended up becoming an attorney and in a sense kind of following in his, in his footsteps. So you had two fantastic role models in terms of the work-life balance, the marriage of, uh, of two professionals, 
raising four daughters, etc. So you actually lived it. You saw it firsthand. You grew up with it. And then you moved on to interview all of these other women. So tell us, tell us some of the stories that stood out of the women that you interviewed in your book, because there were some really standout examples there. I love all my mamas. Some standouts were this amazing woman named Daphne LaSalle Jackson, who's a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army and a JAG Corps officer. She's the mother of three young kids, and she is really just incredible in terms of what she is able to accomplish in a day. I had this one FaceTime call with her where she got her kids ready to go to school got her daughter in and out of a diaper, kissed everybody goodbye, including her husband, got into the minivan, drove to the army base, changed into her uniform, talked to me the whole time, never skipped a beat, and then just got ready to have her day. And in the middle of my writing this book, she was deployed. She was supposed to be deployed to Afghanistan, and they ended up deploying her to Qatar instead. She was away from her family for eight months Mm. serving her country. And while she was there, she would get on Zoom and be with her kids. I think it was like a 12-hour difference to so their breakfast was her dinner and vice versa, but she was reading them bedtime stories. But the other thing that I thought was really fascinating about Daphne, who's one of the most efficient and capable and empathic people I know, is that she told me that it took her getting deployed to actually have time for herself, which I thought was incredible, mm. that she would work really hard, but then when she was done, she was done, and she didn't have anybody to go home to. So she started doing yoga, she started painting, she started doing all these things for herself that she hadn't done as a working mom on an army base in the U.S. And I've been following her ever since. And she's really tried, I think, to be more, I guess, mindful about having some what she calls some Daphne time. So she's remarkable. This other woman, Diana, who is an immigrant from Vietnam, came here when she was 14, didn't speak any English. She, after working at a pretty awful nail salon that was not very kind to her or paid her very well, decided to strike out on her own and start her own Mm -hmm. ethnician business. And watching her business thrive has also been really cool. They're just two of the women, but I so enjoyed not spending time with them, but really with, with, with every mom, because they're all different and unique and remarkable and amazing in their own ways. One of the points that you make in the book is this, uh, this, this old trope that very ambitious women, very successful women in their careers, perhaps they're accused of not paying as much attention to their children or taking care of their children's needs. How did you, what did you find in doing your research? That is absolutely a trope, and it still exists. In fact, a quarter of the American public believes that working mothers are bad for their children. So we still are dealing with that stereotype. But the research actually tends to show the opposite, that children of working mothers tend to do just as well, if not slightly better economically and psychologically than the children of stay-at-home mothers. And I don't say that to declare a mommy war, because I think that if you can afford to stay home and that's what you want, There's absolutely nothing wrong with that choice. And I hate this idea that we have to pick a side. However, I also think it's really important to reassure working moms, many of whom want to work, but also don't have a choice economically, that what they're doing is actually setting a great example for their kids. And I say that because it's just so important that we stop feeling guilty all the time. Mm -hmm. And what about in the home? Of course, we still have this concept of male roles, female roles, perhaps the husband isn't doing the the chores around the house or pulling his weight around the house. And that's a frustration when you have 
essentially a couple who are co-equals in their career. And then when the woman comes home, all of the domestic responsibility seems to fall on her shoulders, whether it's uh, the house cleaning or cooking the, the meals or helping the kids with the homework, et cetera. What did, you, what did your research show as regards changes in attitudes by husbands by generation? I think there's two important takeaways from this. The first one is it does seem like the generation coming up behind the millennials and the Gen Z folks are better. They're more equitable. And so too are same-sex couples. The problem really seems to be with Gen X and up because as we were being taught this big game about equality and pursuing your passion at the same time, bizarrely, these stereotypes about who was supposed to be doing what remained entrenched. And even though there isn't anything particularly suited to women when you talk about changing diapers or cooking a meal or vacuuming the floor, somehow we've come to think that that's women's work and not men's work. And that's been a sticky, hard to dislodge concept. So there's a couple of things that I think need to happen. You know, one is that people really need to be intentional around settling down with a partner. And I talk about how the basic boring parts matter. When you're madly in love, no one wants to talk about who's going to be doing what, but it's important to do that. And it's important to think it through. And the other thing is some of these moms would tell me, I really wish it were more equal, but honestly, if I left it to my husband to make the doctor's appointments or make the dinner or do the grocery shopping, it would be done differently and worse. And I get that. <laughs> I totally get that. That, that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds very familiar. Very yeah, familiar. and I, I understand that. But my response is, you've got to just bite the bullet and get through that learning curve if you want things to change. You're, you may be right. And, and you may have to put up with some level of frustration because these moms tend to be perfectionists and they mm -hmm. want things done a certain way. They don't want the kid going to the doctor or the dentist three months late because dad forgot to make the appointment and they don't want to eat something that doesn't taste particularly good. They'd rather just do it themselves because they know it'll get done and they know it'll get done well. But I think if you're not willing to seed that ground and grit your teeth, it's not going to change. Mm-hmm. And you said that the younger generation, the younger husbands, the younger partners are more apt, more willing, the, the male, uh, more apt, more willing to take on those, uh, those domestic responsibilities. In my limited experience, yes, although I should say that the empirical data is, is the jury is out on that. And I don't know what the, what the studies show, but in, in my sort of anecdotal interviewing people, I've gotten that sense. And, and part of it is that Younger women are just more apt to push back and be more assertive. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's just a trickle down effect of feminism taking firmer hold or what it's about. But I think in general, they are better at demanding parity and making it stick. What about the effects of two years of working from home where you had husband and wives all of a sudden staying at home, taking care of the kids at home? Did that enhance and help female success in their careers or did it set it back okay so this is a question to which i'm going to respond like the lawyer that i am and say <laughs> it depends so here's what happened what happened was that the famous second shift that women get saddled with that you were referring to where they do the bulk of the domestic labor that metastasized and even though men and women were both home. Mm -hmm. It was really the women who were taking on all these extra duties. They were the lunch lady, they were the homeschooler, they were the carpool driver. They had a million different jobs piling up and the dads weren't really, in general, pitching in and doing their fair share. On the other hand, what also happened is that most moms were able to, despite 
the hellscape that they were in succeed. In other words, even though there was this narrative that women are being driven out of the workforce permanently in droves, that actually turned out not to be true. And even Paul Krugman, the New York Times columnist, said the great resignations now seems like the great mistake. Because what was happening was that people were leaving often for better jobs because the economy, there was the scarcity, a labor shortage. And so there's really been more of a reshuffling. So what that means, and this is what I'm writing about now, going back to talk to some of my moms and other moms, is that women are at this inflection point where they have proved that with greater flexibility, they can be just as productive, sometimes even more productive. And they're confronting a landscape where these traditional structures, FaceTime, no matter what, Mad Men era style of doing things has been completely dismantled. And so I think we can go one of two ways. We can, we can move in the direction of we need to continue to dismantle and women need to demand what they deserve, which is permanent flexibility no matter what their job is. Or we can go back to 2019, which I think would be very unfortunate because a lot of the constraints that we were putting on working parents and mothers in particular didn't serve any useful purpose. I think the one caveat I would say about this new flexibility is that women also have to be very firm about setting limits because flexible doesn't mean I'm going to be around whenever you need me if it's two o'clock in the morning because Mm -hmm. I got to have dinner with my family. It means I'm going to work the same amount of hours and be just as productive, but it's going to be on my schedule, not yours. Well, it seems as though corporate America has acknowledged that the COVID pandemic, the work from home phenomenon is here to stay. And while there's a push to bring more people back to the office, there's also a recognition that there will be a much higher proportion of workers, men and women, who will be working from home at least two or perhaps three days a week. So it it looks as though that's going to definitely have a positive impact both for both for women, professional women, and for professional men, both. I agree with that. I think that for most industries, remote work in some way, shape, or form is here to stay. And I think it's going to be very hard to put that genie back in the bottle. So the key is to make that work for families by saying – going back to my point, I'm going to work the same amount of hours just on a different schedule and not letting it just creep into your life to the point where you feel like you're being completely exploited. Let's come back to the issue of childcare, because here in the United States, we're one of the one of the few, if not the only major developed country that doesn't provide assistance from the federal government for childcare so that women can be freed up to go out and work full-time and husbands as well. Where do, you, where do you see that problem today? Do you see any major changes coming on the horizon or are we still stuck way behind the learning curve as compared to countries in Europe and what they're doing in the childcare area? Because that's that's got to be a major consideration, particularly for any professional woman once she has the child and tell these moving stories of weeping and having to hand over the baby to a childcare professional, et cetera. Any thoughts about how that may change here in the United States, or are we still stuck in the 20th century on that issue? Well, Jim, I was really hoping that Build Back Better Part 2 would get passed, which would have subsidized childcare, and it would have made some preschool and pre-K much more affordable, if not free, in some of the iterations of the plan. And then it didn't pass. And I found that just incredibly frustrating and even devastating because you're right we are stuck at least in terms of what the federal government is doing in the 20th century it's shameful that we don't have paid leave it's shameful that we don't have subsidized daycare it's 
outrageous, quite frankly, when you look at all of the other westernized, industrialized nations and what they're doing for women and families and what we're failing to do. So it's hard just to look at that landscape and not be so frustrated and angry. I do take some small, small solace in the fact that there are some states, maybe a handful, who are moving forward with similar bills. So maybe we can accomplish some things on the state level. But honestly, it's hard to put a happy face on this. It's just atrocious. Now, let's come back to one of your great professional accomplishments, which was the exoneration of that gentleman with a terrific name, Cash Register, his, his actual name, his exoneration for having been wrongly convicted. Great personal triumph for you. Tell us a little bit about that story so that our listeners get a sense of the accomplishments that, that you've had in your own legal career. Yeah, Cash's case was definitely probably the highlight of my professional life. And what happened was that he was convicted in 1979 as an 18-year-old black teenager of robbing and murdering an elderly white man. And he was taken away from the house where he was living with his mom, Wilma. And he was locked up for the next 34 years, and he was innocent. He was also, I should add, convicted by an all-white jury. And then my students and I at Loyola Law School had to figure out a way to basically prove that he was innocent. And it took about 18 months of a lot of shoe leather investigation. My students were incredible. And then, unfortunately, because the Los Angeles DA's office refused to concede that they had done anything wrong, we had to try the case all over again. And that time was very intense. This was all happening in LA. I was living in San Francisco. My kids were four and two, Mm -hmm. and I was away a lot, especially during the retrial, which stretched out over a period of weeks. And the way that I sort of explained it to them was I explained that Cash's mommy was waiting for him to come home, just like they were waiting for me to come home, except he had been away for a lot longer. And it was really important for him to be able to see his mom. And that was basically the purpose of what I was doing to reunite Cash with his mother, who had stayed in that same apartment waiting for him and who was just a steadfast believer in his innocence and also in our ability to get him out. And so that was the story that I told my children. And I also told them that this was really about good versus evil because they were both very much into superheroes at that time. And just sort of explaining how the system had had messed up in this very villainous way, or at least that's how it felt, certainly dealing with the DA's office all these years later and them refusing to admit the obvious. And I think that on some level that really resonated with them and they were able in their own way as little kids to kind of understand the importance of it. And since then, understand the importance of it. Last summer, we went to see Cash in Roma. He ended up getting the largest settlement in the city and county of San Francisco history, I think almost $17 million. And things are, life is much, much better for him. He's, he is reunited with his mom. They live in a nice house. He has a good life. And my kids have gotten to sort of experience all of that. And being able to explain it to them as this journey to really reunite a family was very helpful. Now, it it was Los Angeles, not San Francisco, right, Lara? That's right. He was exonerated in L.A. in in November 7, 2013. Again, that, as you said, that was one of your crowning glories. I'm sure many more are to come. Lara, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners? Any more of those vignettes of those wonderful interviews that you did? Or how would you like to close this interview today? Here's what I think. When I was sort of struggling with what to do with my life and 
whether to stay in a relationship that was not working out very well and was not allowing me to do the things I felt like I needed to do to be a fulfilled person. I was listening to Marie Stendak's last interview that he gave with Terry Gross shortly before he died. And mm -hmm. it's short. I recommend everyone listen to it. It's available online. And he was reflecting on the end of his life. And he was talking about, he grew up with a brother and a sister and he, they were all artists. They were all very, very creative people. And he talked about how he and his brother were able to pursue that and they were able to become artists. And he was able to create these incredible books where the wild things are the the book about the kitchen and Max and the baking, all these things that were sort of central to my growing up and my kids growing up, just explore his imagination and be his own person. And then he talked about his sister and how, because she was a girl, she was kind of shunted off into living this very traditional life and not getting to do any of that and how sad that was. And I remember listening to it because I was running in the park and he ended by telling Terry in this really emotional way, my advice is to live your life live your life. And he repeated it. And I just had this kind of wave of, I don't even know what to call it, but I started crying. And I just felt like he was talking to me that you just have this one life mm -hmm. and you've got to pursue the things that you're passionate about. And then I extrapolated from that the lesson that it makes you a better parent mm -hmm. because your kids know that you're happy. They know when you're unhappy and they know when you're happy and they know when you're fulfilled. And so all the time that we spend beating ourselves up because, I don't know, we didn't make the homemade stew to bring to the Thanksgiving potluck, which somehow they always have in the middle of the day, <laughs> or we missed the rehearsal, or we were late to pick up. The truth of the matter is that your kids aren't going to remember that. They're going to remember the fun times that they had with you, even if they occur somewhat unexpectedly. And they're going to remember whether you are a happy person or not. They're going to know. Mm -hmm. And so when you are true to yourself and fulfill your passion, you are actually modeling really important lessons for your kids and you're more likely to be a better parent to them. And so if that's the only thing that I get across, I feel like that's the most important thing. Well, Lara, I think you certainly got that across in the book and you've certainly closed the argument with, with that last vignette about the, the Terry Gross interview. I'd like to thank our guest, Lara Bazelon, for taking the time to discuss her latest book, ambitious like a mother. And Lara, where can our listeners buy a copy of the book? And in fact, it's both in print form, e-form, and audio form. That is exactly right. So it's available online. Of course, if you're not an Amazon person, you can also get it at your local independent bookstore. There's other booksellers, including Little Brown Hachette, which is my publisher. So yes, it's widely available and in many different forms. And I hope your listeners check it out. Listeners, I thoroughly recommend this book. I read it in two sittings. Fascinating book. As I said, it's a combination of a memoir as well as some deep research talking to fascinating women throughout the United States and the, the challenges that they have in their careers. And I thoroughly recommend it to you, Ambitious Like a Mother. And once again, Lara, thank you for being with us. It was so delightful to be with you. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. My pleasure. And for my listeners, as the San Francisco Experience celebrates our second year, thank you for listening. The podcast is featured on 19 platforms, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, among others, with listeners in 50 countries and all 50 states. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.